If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. Yeah. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These Liquor. are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. to the special Hello. live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, doing this show every weekend evening. Well, specifically, it's Friday nights live on Revolution.Radio, the ultimate in free speech networks. It doesn't get any more uncensored than Revolution.Radio. And my website, by the way, is TruthJihad.com. You can also go to my substack, KevinBarrett.Substack.com, to get early access to these shows and lots more. All right, let's get going. We have a really good show tonight. Um, two of the most important American public intellectuals, in my opinion, are coming on to the same radio show. In the second hour, Dr. Alan Sabrowski, former director of strategic studies at the U.S. Army War College, comes on with his editorial assistant, Kat McGuire, to talk about their new article, Unsettled History, the Useful Abuse of the Holocaust. And then in the first hour, my guest, Daniel Pinchbeck, is somebody I've been reading for a long time, shares my interest in mind expansion and mysticism, and he has just gone where only the brave go uh, in his article on Jewish identity, anti-Semitism, and Tikkun Olam. It's interesting that both Alan Zabrowski and Daniel Pinchbeck are from American Jewish ethnic backgrounds, both very non-tribal and free-thinking in their intellectual orientations, uh, one coming from the left, one coming from the right, and they both just happen to publish these kind of controversial articles on this newly uh, exciting topic now that Kanye West, or Ye, has gotten everybody excited again about anti-Semitism and the media is going crazy and so on and so forth. So I thought I'd bring on two interesting perspectives on that from uh, two uh, thinkers that I really respect. So let's get going with Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel Pinchbeck is the author of a long list of books. Uh, I remember reading The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Uh, I got to it a little late. It was during the run-up to the 2012 end of the world. And he's he's written on issues like ayahuasca in his When Plants Dream book. He has a conspiracy theories book out now, Conspiranoia. Or, uh, is that how you pronounce it? I guess so. <laughs> he's done all kinds of uh, great writing on the sort of neo-psychedelia and mysticism topics uh, over the years and uh, been very honest, forthright, and sometimes maybe the mainstream uh, couldn't quite handle what he had to say. And that might happen again with this latest article. So let's get into it. Hey, welcome, Daniel. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, good to have you back. So I've uh, been enjoying your work for quite some time. And so this this topic of Jewish identity and anti-Semitism now in the wake of you know Kanye West or Ye uh, making these incendiary remarks and then suddenly his bank account disappears uh, and uh, Dave Chappelle picking it up and so on. It's back again. It never really has gone away. And so you actually decided to write about it. And your your article begins by expressing your sort of trepidation about even going there and talking about this. 
And so why is it that this topic is so fraught? Uh, well, I mean, the topic is so fraught because of the history of the Jews, right? I mean, they were, um, you know, for thousands of years, a despised uh, underclass in Europe, often subject to, you know, beatings, uh, mass murders, rapes, and so on. Uh, they were consigned to like a few uh, professions, like they weren't allowed to, you know, to, you know, or we weren't allowed to do a lot of things. Uh, and um, yeah, it's just, it's just, you know, a unique and controversial uh, history, which in fact, Hello, Daniel. Just uh, seemed to get cut off. Hopefully there's nobody who doesn't want to hear what Daniel has to say that has the ability to cut us off. So we'll hopefully bring him back. I'm looking at the call. And I, oh, you're back. We, lose, we lost each other? Yeah, we yeah lost, I lost you for a second there. I don't know what, what happened. Okay, so, yeah. So, I mean, um, I, mean uh, I have a little, you know, hearing your run-up to this conversation, I felt a little bit of trepidation also because... Um, I mean, I'm Jewish, you know, and uh, my mother's Jewish, and I don't in any way want to put forth anything that, you know, fits with anti-Semitic, uh, you know, stereotypes or archetypes. I mean, um, you know, because um, of the history of the Jewish people, uh, you know, we ended up, you know, very successful in certain areas, uh, you know, maybe disproportionately so when you look at the, the numbers of Jews in the world. Um, but there's a lot of historical reasons for that. I mean, for instance, if you read like Mel Gabler's book, uh, Why the Jews Invented Hollywood, or you know, the, how the Jews Invented Hollywood, um, you know, they, they were coming from this vaudeville tradition. Like a lot, a lot of professions were closed, but uh, Jews became like the masters of like vaudeville in the early 19th. In the... Oops, looks like we had another uh, uh, temporary interruption here. Hopefully, that won't keep happening. Um, again, this, this shouldn't be all that controversial. I can't believe that the ADL would be uh, censoring what Daniel is saying right now, but, uh, I guess you never know these days, do you? Um, well, hopefully you'll pop back in. Yeah. I'm right here. What's going on? What's going on with this? Thing? I have no idea. It's, it's what happens is, is a message pops up that says Daniel has left the conversation and then I can't hear you. And then suddenly you pop okay. back. So <laughs> got me. Got it. Um, I know you had suggested doing this with Skype, um, but I haven't used Skype in a long time, uh -huh. and uh, I just didn't know what my um, password was or anything like that. Um, do you, do you, do you think you're going to hold? Yeah, I hope. Well, we can try a little longer, I guess. And are you, do you have a bad phone signal or something? No, I never have a problem with the phone. Huh, that's interesting. Well, I, I have guests. You know, this, we cover a lot of controversial <laughs> stuff on this show, so sometimes I've had guests wonder about these. We, in fact, interestingly, the second hour guest, Alan Sobrowski, is notorious for some somebody messes <laughs> with his communications. But I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't have any paranoia. Uh, I don't think of anything like that. <laughs> that's good. Okay. Well, uh, let's, let's keep trying. Uh, while, while, while we're talking, I'll see if I can figure out my um, my Skype thing. Okay. Um, uh, okay, so um, uh, where was I? Yeah, so so there's a lot of reasons why, you know, Jewish people ended up being very, very successful uh, in certain industries. Um, and, um, and, you know, that contributed to, you know, banking being one of them. You know, that, that contributed to kind of... Um, you know, kind of like ancient fears of the Jews. I mean, you have like totally fraudulent like uh, documents, like um, you know, protocols of Zion and so on. Um, so yeah, it's a long and complicated history. So, so what is it about it that that interests you? Well, 
uh, boy, where do I even start? <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I guess I could just uh, give you a rundown sort of, of how I got into the place where I am, where I'm doing a show like this, which is that, uh, I, I guess as I grew up like you, I was influenced by the counterculture. And one of the reasons was that when I was in high school, I saw Mark Lane give a talk on the JFK assassination and, and show the Zapruder film. And I investigated that. It completely blew my 15 year old mind. And, uh, that kind of knocked me out of the mainstream and left a chip on my shoulder about the kind of culture that could let the people that did that get away with it. So fast forward to 2004, actually end of 2003, I, I heard that David Ray Griffin, one of the greatest philosophers of our time, was writing something about 9-11 that was saying that they blew up the buildings and that whatever happened to the Pentagon, it wasn't a hijacked plane. So I, I said, that's ridiculous. But David Ray Griffin, my goodness, I'm citing him in my dissertation. So I looked into it. Turns out it was true. Obviously true. I mean, nobody can deny it. Look at Building 7. So I said, am I going to sit there for seven years with my mouth shut trying to get tenure at the University of Wisconsin? Or am I going to work on this issue? And I decided to work on the issue, started doing teach-ins. Next thing you know. Well, I, I just, I just, yeah. I, hold on. I just want to tell yeah. you, when you say one of the greatest philosophers of the I mean, that's not borne out by, um, you know, just looking him up. I didn't know him in advance. Uh, I mean, you know, well, yeah, because, yeah, because he's been he's been massively downgraded by the custodians of our public discourse because he wrote yeah. 14 books on 9/11. But before, if he hadn't um, done that, John Cobb and yeah. David Ray Griffin would definitely be two of the greatest philosophers of our time, as they were widely recognized by all the smart people I knew in the 1990s. But by, by the way, just in case you get cut off again, I sent you a Skype invite uh, on your email. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so you can just use that and try that again if we get cut off. Okay, I'd, I'd have to pass it to the, the studio, but yeah, I'll, I'll try and do that. Anyway, so, so okay. long story short, I ended up out of academia and uh, a notorious 9-11 truther. And the next thing you know, I have a Wikipedia page. And on my Wikipedia page, all of this slanderous stuff gets pasted and won't go down, claiming that I'm a friend of Holocaust deniers or an associate or something like that, supporter. It's all complete BS. I didn't even know two of the three names. And the third name, David Irving, I had just barely heard of and hadn't read. This was all sourced to an anonymous blog somewhere. So that really annoyed me. And the more I looked into 9-11, the more I ended up agreeing to some extent with uh, Alan Sabrosky, the former uh, head of strategic studies at U.S. Army War College, who's coming on in the second hour, that Israel was probably, if not the prime mover behind 9-11, certainly an equal partner with the right-wing elements in the national security state that did it. And that led me into looking at the work of the various people who basically understood and analyzed that. And the next thing you know, that whole question has opened up. And I translated a book by Lauren Guyanot called uh, From Yahweh to Zion, which looks at issues of um, Jewish identity up through 9-11, and indeed the JFK assassination, which Laurent, like Michael Collins Piper, believes was largely done by Israel to save nu the nuclear weapons program. So in any case, that's how I got into these kinds of very taboo topics, and mm -hmm. it's, it's led me to... I mean, I, 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 by the way, I've never heard before that, that Israel was even involved with the JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I don't, I don't get a little concerned about where we're, where, where we're, you know, kind of, you know, mucking around in this conversation. I mean, um, but anyway, go, go ahead. What were you going to say? Okay. So, so in terms of like what you're talking about, uh, the historical trajectory of, uh, Jews in, in the West and the kind of 
Jewish disproportionate presence in places like Hollywood and banking. Um, I think maybe an even more important place to look is the national security state. And like Biden's cabinet, his Biden's whole cabinet right now is almost entirely Jewish, which is really bizarre. I mean, imagine if Biden's whole cabinet was entirely Muslim. You know, I happen to be Muslim, by the way. And uh, it, it seems to me that there really is, yeah, one could say, honestly, in the same way that one would have said in, ni- in the 1920s or 30s that wasps rule America, that would have been roughly accurate, an accurate generalization. Today, you could say Jews, Jews rule America. Or Jewish well, I really think, I think, sorry, sorry, I think that's a gigantic exaggeration. I don't agree with you. Uh, and I'm so, so what's the, the difference between the two? The wasps and, and wasps pre-World War II, Jews post-World War II, is one correct yeah. and the other incorrect, or are they both problematic? Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, as I said, there are different industries where, I mean, like, you know, if you look at farming, you know, fossil fuels, you know, I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of industries where Jews are not prominent that are, you know, extremely powerful and one could have a lot of conspiracy, you know, about, you know, how, you know, and should, for instance, how the fossil fuel industry has, uh, you know, created massive disinformation around the impacts of, of, uh, you know, fossil fuels to create CO2 and climate change and so on. Uh Oh, we lost Daniel again. So let's see if I can figure out a way to pass his Skype handle over to uh mr Rowe, and i think i just did that so now maybe mr hello Rowe. hello daniel you're back sorry about that I don't okay know what's cool. going on see, see see if we can do this if we can shift to the skype thing if this happens again yeah I, I did i just email. sent your skype panel to uh mr Rowe, who's in the studio at revolution radio so maybe he'll be able to switch over to that if it happens again. okay great Sorry okay yeah. So, uh, okay, so, so your point. I see, okay. I see you. Okay. I see you asking me for an invite. So, I'm, so great. You can now start chatting on Skype. So you should be able to just call me on Skype now. Okay. Um, okay. So, so there's many, many super complicated things, and I, you know, and, and a lot of it is, um, uh, it's, it's always like, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know where exactly to to go with this with you at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the Jews have acted worse in a way than. You know, other ethnic groups, you know, including the Wasps and the Christians. Uh, for, for me, my, my writing was more of amusing, you know, being Jewish around, you know, kind of those areas where I do feel that, uh, you know, kind of like there's a kind of, um, let's say, a gap between the kind of uh, ethical kind of principles, you know, maybe that the religion, you know, would suggest and, 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 and you know, how some things get played out. So, for instance, um, the Sackler family and the opioid epide- epidemic, you know, or, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and the, uh, you know, knowing that their algorithms were causing like epidemics of teen suicides, you know, and, and, and as I said, I feel that there are many people who are of different faiths and traditions who just do just as, you know, terrible things, but being Jewish, I wanted to write a little piece just calling, you know, a couple of these calling to attention, you know, why these things happen in the Jewish community and I think that, um, you know, the reason is that um, kind of um, Jews developed in a certain way, you know, as an outsider group. Um, you know, I talked, I, I wrote a lot about Hannah Arendt's book, um, kind of um, Origins of Totalitarianism, where she really analyzes the um, kind of how Jews developed in Europe, um, 
you know, how the sort of wealthy elites use, made very close alliances with the aristocracy. They kind of learned to kind of like ally themselves with establishment power. And at the same time, there was a certain bitterness around kind of like legacy of like really horrible treatment that the Jews no doubt have been subjected to, you know, by the Nazis, by the Catholics, you know, historically and so on. And that maybe that creates a little bit of a, of a sort of um, kind of uh, amoral, you know, kind of willingness to uh, profit in ways that uh, it would be better not to profit. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of all I was really trying to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you said it very well. And I, I thought that was that was all uh, pretty much, you know, on target. And I guess the, the one thing I would question or, or you know, wonder whether you would add to that analysis would be that it, is, is it possible that this isn't really just a matter of, you know, some individual Jews who become opportunistic in immoral ways and part of the reason being that they sort of feel like they the world owes it to them because they were picked on or whatever, but also the, you, one could add to that sort of an issue of ethnic nepotism and, and cooperation among such people. Like if we look at Jeffrey Epstein, for example, uh, it appears that he was blackmailing powerful Americans and working primarily for, for the Israeli Mossad and for Mossad elements or friendly you know, elements in the, in the CIA. And yes, yeah. I, I, de- I definitely I definitely agree that he and Ghislaine Maxwell were working were working as Mossad agents for sure. Right. And so here what we're dealing with isn't just some individual who is behaving immorally and opportunistically because in part because he maybe feels that, oh, this is part of my in you know, my culture. It's OK to do that because we've been picked on for a long time. But there's also this issue of, again, ethnic nepotism, which is, of course, not limited to the Jewish community. Well, I mean, it's, 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 yes, okay, it's universal. But, but, okay. Right. But actually, that's not, it's really, in that situation, it's actually more about, um, you know, security states, right? I mean, you know, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. through the CIA has, um, you know, done many things in many countries that, uh, you know, we don't, we don't talk about so much. Um, and um, Except you know, on this radio show. KG, K, as has the KGB, you know, or the FSB or whatever they're called now. So, you know, there are there are these, you know, hyper militarized state apparatuses that have secret intelligence services. And, uh, you know, they, they do dirty work behind the scenes. And yeah, I mean, in terms of Epstein, you know, he was definitely part of it. I mean, what I don't think exists is um, kind of like, you know, yes. And, and there is, of course, nepotism within Jews, but there's also a nepotism within Christians and even, you know, probably within black communities. I mean, you know, people tend to promote the people that, you know, are close to them and who they sympathize with and feel kinship with, you know, um, you know, I, I don't know if we can say that that's like specifically like a worse thing, you know, in, in, no, no, you know no. it's just that, you know, you know, it's just, it's just that the way that our, that the history evolved, um, you know, in a way, you know, ironically in a way, like because the European elites, you know, gave Jews in the Middle Ages, you know, the sort of banking, you know, sector in a way. Um, and, you know, Christians were thought it was too dirty to do money lending and so on. And as capitalism developed, that obviously became, you know, an incredibly powerful uh, position. You know, so, yeah, we do have like, you know, Jewish heads of like Goldman Sachs and, and Blackwater. And then you can, you know, look at, um, you know, and of course, there are lots of, non, you know, there's lots of wasps, lots of, other ethnicities and, and religions, you know, in those firms, but yeah, there, 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 you know, it, it does seem that there is 
Um, you know, considering these small numbers of Jews in the world, it's extraordinary how much power there, there is. And I guess all I was doing in the piece, the pieces was trying to, which were really written more for, you know, the, you know, my fellow Jews than anybody else was just to sort of say, Hey guys, let's, let's, let's look about this because, you know, if, um, if things go in a certain direction and we end up with, um, um, you know, kind of, uh, we're, we're already seeing in the U S like right wing militia, you know, um, and as climate change and the ecological crisis gets worse and there's more breakdowns and resource breakdowns, there's going to be a lot of angry people looking for scapegoats, you know? So in that sense, um, if the, uh, you know, if, if those who, you know, the Jewish community and other communities who had power at this moment were to kind of like, um, uh, you know, maybe think more carefully about uh, what their deepest interests are, uh, you know, that could be, that could be positive. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I, I know some people, in fact, some people I, I have on this radio show who uh, do seem to be going overboard on scapegoating Jews. I had the, my, the Schaefer brother and sister, Monica and Alfred on a while back, and they seem to be going overboard on that. Uh, I'm sure you would agree if you heard them. And uh, my friend Lynn Din as well seems to be, has, has kind of gone what strikes me as like way overboard in blaming COVID issues on Jews in, in a way that doesn't make much sense to me, to the extent that there's any you know, national security state to blame for COVID. It looks to me like the American national security state. And I don't see any special, you know, Jewish or Israeli Zionist interest there. So yeah, I think there, there, there is a, a fair bit of irrational scapegoating going on, but then, you know, there's also the issues of, you know, to what extent is quote unquote, you know, certain elements of what we would call anti-Semitism or pushback against Jewish power. Uh, sometimes could it ever be legitimate? And just, you know, to, to frame this, I would say I have friends in Malaysia, uh, Malaysian Muslims who strongly support the political orientation of the, the majority in Malaysia, which uh, I think also like the majority in Indonesia is you know, very conscious of ethnicities forming these power blocks that engage in nepotism. And in both cases, and especially Malaysia, which I know much better where I visited, it is widely believed that Chinese people, the Chinese diaspora, is a very powerful market-dominant minority, and they have had to be restricted by law, or else that market-dominant minority of ethnically Chinese people would totally dominate Malaysia. And so in order to keep uh, economic opportunities and political power in the hands of the Muslim majority in Malaysia, they've actually had to legislate various kinds of restrictions on the Chinese community. And the same thing, I believe, has happened in Indonesia. So here in the United States, you, one could argue that there is a somewhat analogous situation in certain respects with the market-dominant Jewish minority in various places. And you know, one ex if you really want to see a, a well-documented example of this, you should read Ron Unz's article on uh, ethnic discrimination in admissions in the Ivy League. And he does a very careful quantitative analysis showing that um, the the uh, non-Jewish whites are just massively discriminated against in admissions to the Ivy League. They didn't used to be, but today, if you're Jewish, I believe you have something like an eight times greater chance of admission to the Ivy League than if you're a non-Jewish white with this, exactly the same test scores, grades, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so it, it, is, it appears that Asians and especially non-Jewish whites are practically barred from the Ivy League in terms of what it takes to get in there. 
uh, Jews are greatly helped. Why is that? Well, every admissions director in every Ivy League school is Jewish, and the vast majority of the presidents of the Ivy League are Jewish, and these universities as a whole have largely been taken over by ethnically nepotistic Jews. And so if you're a, a white person or an Asian person in the United States, it, you notice that the, the elite of your country has been is, is shifted due to this. And the question becomes, would somebody be a bad racist anti-Semite if they said, look, I want my white non-Jewish kid to have exactly the same chance as the Jewish kid in getting into the Ivy League, in getting into Hollywood and making movies, in getting into the economic banking sector, in getting into journalism? Yeah, I think you have to be very careful. I mean, I haven't seen that particular analysis, so I can't really you know, comment on it. But, you know, I mean, as Kierkegaard said, like numbers are the opposite of truth. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful because, you know, we, we, we all have biases. I mean, um, look at like the bell curve or whatever. I mean, you know, biases can easily lead to looking at things in different ways. I mean, you know, my memory of college, I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but I visited a bunch of them, is there were like, you know, tons of Asians, you know, tons of wasps. I mean, um, you know, there's definitely just as much networks, I, I believe, of, 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 of uh, wasp nepotism as Jewish nepotism, you know. Um, so that's, that, that's, you know, my understanding of it. I'd be happy to look at this piece. By the way, I'm looking at the um, White House cabinet, and you made this declaration that it's, that it's largely Jews. Or, or and I'm not okay, really, I think at least sure one or two are married to Jews, but not Jewish themselves, yeah. Okay, well, that's a different statement. So you made, like, a very categorical statement, and I'm actually looking at this group, and I'm not really seeing... Um, Kamala Harris obviously is not Jewish. Is is Jen Yellen Jewish? Is Anthony Blinken? Is Lloyd Austin probably not? Yeah, Eric Garland well, Bl- probably not. Is, not. I think Austin is. Yeah, Blinken, Blinken. I would imagine. Yeah. So of course, uh, Tom Vilsack, uh, Deb Haaland. So Blinken is about it, as far as I can see. Yeah, um, we, we'll, we'll, we'll know, have to let that one go for the comments to get the specific idea. I, I, what I, re, I re, do recall yeah, seeing, seeing a claim. Right, but I, it's just, it's yeah. Just, I'm, yeah, yeah, but I'm just interested in, in the way you made that claim mm-hmm. because, um, as I said, there's a lot of you know kind of convoluted emotionality mm-hmm. uh, behind how people feel about certain things, mm-hmm. and um, it seems like that claim. Looking at the cabinet, there's basically no Jews here, maybe except for Blinken. So that was a total uh, I, I would bet you, I bet you if I were a betting man, I would bet you anything that that's not the case. If there's, there's well, maybe there's one or two more, but there's yeah. like 20 people on the cabinet. If, if three of them are Jews or four, I mean, it's yeah, like, I think it's I, I was, overwhelming. Well, yeah, the, the claim I heard was something seven of eight, and I think they were looking maybe, at, I don't know, it was the eight eight who were the foreign policy people or whatever it was. I don't, I don't recall. But in any case, yeah, yeah we, we can we can figure, hash that out in the comments on the article. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's just, you know, it's very easy to make a lot of... Yeah, but Unza's uh, article on Ivy League admissions is pretty careful, though. I would, yeah, I mean, that's cool. There's one article that some guy wrote who, you know, maybe, I don't know him, maybe had a chip on his shoulder. I mean, I'm, 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 my, my sense is, yes, there are, is, you know, Jewish nepotism. I've heard examples of it. But I, I guarantee you there's also, you know, wealthy wasp nepotism. I mean, George Bush, you know, Jr. didn't get into a Yale on the basis of his uh, SAT scores. You know? That's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, that's what I started this conversation by saying. Yeah, it's universal. I mean, everybody has a degree of nepotism, but I, I do think that one, you know, looking around at the United States today and in the history since World War II, we would say that the Jewish nepotism has been a lot more effective than really anybody else. Like, I'm yeah, Irish American. Where's my nepotism? I don't see. I don't see any advantage to being Irish American whatsoever. Right. Well, I mean. Um... You know, are there fields where Catholics and wasps kind of dominate? I mean, I don't know of any Jews, you know, running like fossil fuel companies, 
Uh, and you know, you have lots of people in the tech world who, you know, whether Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, you know, someone who aren't Jewish, you know, even though you have also a number, you know, like, um, you know, Sergey Brin and Zuckerberg, you know, who are Jewish. Uh, right, but it's a question uh, of proportion, though. Jews, Jews are only 2% of the population. So theoretically, you know, right. like if okay, they were but, 3% but, you know, in these positions, sure. they would be okay. 50% right. overrepresented. Yeah, but the thing is that the, 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 that's why I started out looking at the historical reasons. And another reason is that, um, you know, because of the Jews were forced into, you know, certain, you know, first of all, there was one issue was that the um, tradition of Jewish scholarship uh, in terms of like the Talmud and so on, uh, entrained Jews over centuries in critical analysis and literary analysis. So as our culture moved into the modern age, those type of skills actually became much more predominant in different fields, you know, whether in, in, in legal fields or in philosophy, you know, even, you know, I mean, you know, you can look at how, you know, a lot of, you know, Jewish thinkers, were extremely important to just, you know, sort of like the, the paradigm of, of, you know, the modern world, you know, whether it's Freud, Einstein, you know, Karl Marx, I mean, they're very significant insights uh, that came through, you know, and it is very disproportionate, but it's really because they were forced into, um, you know, I mean, well, first of all, they had the tradition culturally of high literacy and learning critical analysis from a very young age, that being highly valued in, in, in Jewish society. Uh, then they were forced into, or we were forced into, let's say, certain professions, um, more intellectual professions, and barred from many other industries. So wait, wait, a minute. You you're, know, you're, so you're forced. You're forced. You're not allowed to be a, a peasant. So you're forced into banking and law and things like that. Pretty, pretty well, well, certainly banking. I mean, nobody else would allow. They don't, no, the, the Christians didn't want to be, um, you know, moneylenders. Uh, so basically, the, Jew, the Jews were kind of like it was considered dirty to do that. So Jews were kind of forced into it, but they didn't maybe, you know, yeah. So, but, but also as, you know, Arendt uh, lays out, I think very interestingly in Origins of Totalitarianism and Nick Cohn also explores this other book that I talked about, Warned, Warned for Genocide. Um, you know, the, um, uh, oops, oops, oops. Have I lost my train of thought here? Um, um, talking about the, the professions, like being, which professions were open to Jews, which ones weren't. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so, so, yeah, so there's a lot of historical reasons why the situation evolved, you know, um, where Jews just had more, you know, much higher skill set, um, for certain types of critical intellectual work, you know, than the average population. Well, there's an education requirement, isn't it? Like traditionally to get do the bar mitzvah, you have to be literate, isn't that right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, that's that's actually pretty incredible. If we stop and think, they're, they're, a thousand years ago, ninety nine percent of people were not literate, and Jews had to be exactly. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, and, and you know, so it's like, uh, you know, also one thing that I talked about in the piece is, um, you know, the, the sort of Jewish heritage of also, you know, kind of like, um, you know, radical civil rights work. I mean, a lot of my favorite kind of activists. I mean, you know, like Abby Hoffman. Yeah, me too, uh, actually. I, left, I was know, a big you know, fan of Abby yeah. Hoffman when I was young. Yeah. Um, so there's that, too. And that that's the part of Judaism where I really feel there's an opportunity for um, kind of uh, inspiration, you know, to, to, you know, this whole idea of Tikhon Olam or the uh, Zadik, uh, this idea of, like, you know, kind of uh, righteous behavior or um, that the Jews have some responsibility as the quote-unquote chosen people to try to repair the world or restore what's broken and so on. 
So, I mean, I, you know, I think that does still very much exist in Judaism. So there's an opportunity there for, um, for the Jewish community to uh, move in that direction. You know, I mean, and, and for me, everything is really, um, <clears throat> my thinking is all about kind of where things are going to go uh, in the next few years, because, you know, as, you know, I mean, I mean, I, I know, you you know, it seems like you're 9-11 conspiracist. I don't know all of your thinking. Where, where do you stand on climate change? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I kind of, I half my audience is going to get really mad at me no matter what I say on this one. But I'll, I'll just say that yeah. I've looked, I've done my best to look at the critiques of climate change that many of my listeners have sent me, including one actually pretty good book. And I still find that the mainstream slash alarmist position looks to me to have better arguments and evidence behind it. You know, David Ray Griffin, the scholar, uh, the preeminent scholar of 9-11 Truth, uh, published a very um, strong, well-researched and very alarmist book on global warming. And I'm, I still haven't, you know, I've, my half my audience it just keeps throwing stuff at me, you know, claiming that it's all yeah. hoax and so on and so forth, but they haven't convinced me. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, you know, it's like... Um... Um, I mean, that's a whole nother, you know, for, for me, the evidence is incontrovertible. I mean, we, we can even just like feel it, right? Like we can see how, you know, how, how, how fast. Well, if you step outside my house today, Daniel, you're not going to feel uh, warming. That's for sure. Well, yes, but, but <laughs> for sure, mine either. But, but I mean, but even the polar vortex or whatever, the over, the sort of extreme intensity of um, winter storms fits in with this kind of, basically we've just, you know, with all the CO2, we're putting more energy into the atmosphere. Uh, and so it's creating more high energy effects, very cold, very warm, moving obviously towards the But if you look at like the drying out of the rivers, you know, the, uh, I mean, there's so many, uh, you know, the, you know, threats to the food supply, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, so it's like there, there's, there's a way that from my perspective, a lot of people at this point in time are, um, you know, not able to fully reason uh, rationally, like their emotions get very engaged in their feelings, and um, that's also part of our part of our problem. Um, because, yeah, I mean, my perspective is within five to ten years, we are going to start seeing you know even even more um, traumatic effects from warming and climate change. You know, refugee populations, uh, you know, food shortages, droughts, and so on. And uh, then there's going to be a tendency in a lot of angry people. To look for strong leaders uh, that'll that'll be more like authoritarian leaders, and also to scapegoat and to demonize uh, uh, you know, groups. So, um, in a way, I'm, you know, by by talking about these issues, I'm trying to sort of, um, you know, bring it up before 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 these things get worse. In a way. It. Yeah, that, I think that's a great idea, and, and I think you're absolutely right to be concerned about scapegoating in general and the possible scapegoating of of, of Jews or whoever. Right? I mean, we. We've just lived through an amazing era of scapegoating of Muslims after, you know, I believe 9-11 was actually orchestrated specifically to create that scapegoating. And according to Dr. Gijin Palya, uh, close to 30 million Muslims have been killed because of that. So uh, René Girard is the great philosopher and anthropologist of, of the scapegoating that he saw as the binding force in all human societies. And people really should start reading René Girard because, yeah, I think, I think you're probably right, Daniel. I think that we're obviously in really unsettled times. It's highly likely that ecological disruption is going to be a, a big factor in this and that this tendency of people to band together by hating on somebody is uh, a really dangerous thing that could get a lot worse. 
Yeah, which is what happened, which is actually what, what culminated in, you know, the, the Nazi thing. Uh, yeah, I'd never heard the number of 30 million Jews before, I'm sorry, 30 million Muslims before. Um, well, it's actually 27 so, yeah, million yeah. killed and another uh, three plus in, million in, that were in, never in, born in, because in, their in, parents in, were killed. Oh, okay, but in what sense? I mean, killed. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's, it turns out to be misleading because what he's really talking about is uh, it includes all of the deaths by deprivation. So the the direct deaths, I forget how many million there were, three or four million uh, direct deaths uh, mm-hmm. from uh, military actions, and from the Iraq War. Yeah, and, and the way he got these numbers was by looking at what population growth would have been. I'm noticing once again that you seem to have a little bit of a tendency to uh, go for the most extreme um, kind of like, um, you know, kind of like, you know, of the range of numbers that are possible. You sort of you, you immediately go for the 30 million. So for me, that that suggests a certain emotionality. Well, some people say that about the six million, or, too, you know, <laughs> like Alan Zabrowski, actually. <laughs> I mean, it's it's. They, they, well, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it, it's it, you know, I mean, it seems like that's been pretty well documented from anything I've, I've seen about it. Um, well, actually, the father I mean, of uh, Jewish Holocaust studies, Raul Hilberg, uh, said the number was 5.1 million. But, of course, he would be sent to prison if he said that in Germany today. Yeah. So, so why, do you, why do they need laws to imprison people who, uh, talk, like, you just you just downplayed the number of Muslims that Dr. Gijin Palya, the... Well, was, I, did, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't downplay it. I asked you to unpack it. And when you unpacked it, I felt that you'd chosen the most, the most uh, large number, to, mm-hmm. which for me seemed like emotionally a way to support your argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I actually, I, I, I've heard this critique. I've heard that children, critique many depri- times. Deprivation deaths yeah. or children not born deaths are completely different than direct uh, um, deaths. But, but anyway, to go, go ahead. Well, I mean, it, it, yes and no. I mean, if, if you if you starve and freeze to death with your children because you've lost your home and you're trekking from Afghanistan to Pakistan and you die slowly, that might actually be worse than getting your head blown off by it by a drone. So it's no, it's not that mm-hmm. different, really. Yeah, but I mean, anyway, it's, it's a very it's a very murky thing to. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it's that the same thing with 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 the Holocaust uh, issue too. Like when when people like Dr. Alan Sabrowski, we're going to hear in the second hour argue that the six million figure with you know gas chambers is exaggerated, et cetera, et cetera. That what, 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 what does it even matter if it's five million or six million or yeah. eight million or ten million? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's a fucking yeah. hell hell a lot of Jews died in those in those camps, obviously. I mean you know right, you go but, to the Holocaust Museum and you could see like, you know, tons of tons of evidence of all that. Right. Well, of course what what does matter so why, 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 why waste your time? Is it, is it like a semi is that like a semi Holocaust denying kind of a thing. Uh, well, I, I think the, the argument. I mean, well, I, I don't think you should. I don't you think you waste time with stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, no, I, I, I'm interested in the search for truth, and not only the search for actual truth about what may have happened during World War II, but also the truth about the way that the storytelling about what happened in World War II and in all these other cases, uh, including the but, but why, Wars, why the interest affects power. In effect, but I mean, it really depends on like, today. I mean. Um, there's lots of different, you know, areas of truth. I mean, as you cover the um, fossil fuel companies and the hundreds of millions of dollars they spent on disinformation around climate change, for instance. Uh, well, I've had a few, some shows on climate change. The reason I, I haven't done that so much is that this particular uh-huh. my show 
is designed to look at the most important issues that are being systematically covered up, obfuscated, or lied about right. in mainstream discourse. That's what I'm interested in doing, cool. and that's what needs so to be I, done, uh, because I, we I, get, we got yeah, plenty yeah, of right. climate change hysteria in the mainstream. I don't need right. to do that. It's everywhere. We don't, we don't, we, we don't actually have a lot of climate change hysteria. We, we have you know, serious worry uh, about a situation that is getting very much out of control. And it is the case that I mean, one thing that I find very strange in the conspiracy world is um, kind of like uh, kind of avoiding some of the things that you know are more maybe true and close at hand, uh, and and then and then sort of you know constantly focusing on things that have a kind of um, more of an emotional kind of uh, tinge to them. Um, rather, you know, so for for instance, like for me, the fact that the you know fossil fuel companies have spent you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars on disinformation um, and even paid other was just a recent article with them paying off, uh, you know, TV stations not to air, uh, you know, stuff about the, you know, global warming and so on. I mean, uh, they've, they've, they've created all these networks of uh, think tanks and so on to, you know, try to really tilt the discourse. Uh, um, you know, that, that, that is an actual real conspiracy that, you know, may ultimately have much, much more, traumatic effects on uh, all of us uh, than worrying about uh, whether it was like 5 million or 6 million Jews who died in the Holocaust 70 years ago. Well, that, that's true. Yeah, I, I would agree I, uh, with that. How, however, I, I think there's uh, an overarching issue maybe that we haven't quite you know, talked about yet, which is the, uh, let's say, the, the, the type of power structure that we're living under and to what extent can we realistically expect to influence it to do better on any of these issues, including climate change, including avoiding uh, wars, because climate change or any other ecological challenge uh, with the population growth that we're having uh, is going to lead to nation-state competition, uh, and those wars are going to just exacerbate the problems that were already there. So then the question becomes sort of, well, what kind of leadership do we have? And I, I think issues like 9-11, the JFK assassination, uh, and so many <laughs> related issues about relating to the national security state, which ultimately has the power uh, that if, if the national security state wants the fossil fuel industry to do something, it does it. It jumps. I don't know if you've read the oil card by James Norman, but it uh, details, uh, it makes a very, very strong argument that the price of oil was massively manipulated to destroy the Soviet Union. They pushed oil low to kill the Soviet Union. And uh, these kinds of manipulations are done by a plunge protection team working for the national security state. These are not executives from the oil companies that make these decisions. Likewise, not one oil company executive was the least bit interested in Bush's 9-11 wars. That was totally a national security state thing and mainly driven by Israel, actually. So the question of what kinds of people we actually have in power in our national security states, are they honest? Are they going to listen to us? Or are they extremely corrupt, mendacious, and psychopathic? To me, that's almost a, a primary question. Secondly, can we trust what we're getting from mainstream institutions? If we can't trust what we're getting from mainstream institutions, a rational person would not believe in climate change because those mainstream institutions are lying so outrageously about so many things. Why should we believe them about this? Well, it's not about the mainstream institutions. It's about the thousands of scientists who, um, you well, know, I mean... They're not part of mainstream institutions? Well, I mean, they're, they're part of academies, but some of you know, but many of them are actually like you know, uh, protesting, you know, getting arrested. I mean, you know, they're, they're putting their money with their mouth. It's not like they're trying to save face or like, uh, make a quick buck or something. I mean, they're actually like endangering themselves. 
Right. But, you know, as Lynn Margulis, who is, you know, one of the greatest biological thinkers of the 20th century, said many times on my radio show, science today is just completely dead because the scientific community has turned away from fifth grade physics uh, looking at what happened to the buildings on 9-11. You know, where are the scientists? It's fifth grade physics, and yet the mainstream discourse on this is just one big, outrageous, genocidal lie. So why should we believe those professors, those scientists, those technicians who are silent well, I mean, about this? There, I mean, but there's, there's, I mean, I don't understand. There's evidence, like, every, I mean, that's just, I mean, the evidence is totally overwhelming. I mean, it's, you know, it's absolutely, like, staggeringly overwhelming about, like, what's you're happening. Talking about, you're talking insects, about the, the demolitions on 9-11, you, right? I mean, it's, that's... Uh, no, 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 I'm not talking about 9 that's, that's infinitely more yeah. obvious than climate change, Daniel. It's so much simpler and straightforward and more obvious. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I ha- haven't really thought much about 9-11 for a while. I guess that's still a big subject for you. Um, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I, 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 always, I, I always believed there was a cover-up there. And but from my perspective, it was largely due to um, you know, Bush and Cheney um, and Rumsfeld, who had you know Cheney and Rumsfeld been part of the project for New American Century, where they had actually you know in their kind of like project document had said that the U.S. needs something like a Pearl Harbor level inciting incidents uh, in order to be able to access the strategic oil reserves of the Middle East. And so, from my perspective, you know there was some either passively or actively engineering. Um, you know, we know that those guys were trained in CIA flight schools and so on. And you know, George Bush Sr. was the head of the CIA. So that, that's where I would look to for that situation. Right, right. But the, the scientific issue is looking at what happened to those buildings. And that is yeah, yeah, way yeah, no, simpler I, 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 I than talk, climate change. But I, I, don't, but I don't understand what, what the, I mean, I don't, to me, they're completely different things. I mean, one is an isolated incident. The other is like the whole future of humanity at stake. Um, if we're if if uh, we don't have our uh, act together on on the uh, climate situation, I, I don't see nine eleven as an isolated incident. We've been under a state of emergency since nine eleven. Uh, the Constitution was eviscerated. The uh, mori manners and morals have been massively uh, affected. Yeah, you know, we've basically been living in a nineteen eighty four style national security state ever since nine yeah, eleven. We don't have yeah, a democratic I mean, republic, on, republic by any it means. Was, it, yeah, but I mean, the same was is true like, for the GFK yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we're, we're in agreement. This is a system where power, you know, does its thing. You know, I mean, I mean, unfortunately, you know, with, with some, you know, some kind of stop gaps of, of law. But I mean, yeah, but I mean, you know, look at what just happened to, you know, Stephen Donziger, you know, from, from, from yeah, who, um, you know, was under house arrest for 999 days for misdemeanor, which never happened before. Because he went against uh, Chevron, he would be a great person for you to have on your show. By the way, yeah, okay. Uh, he was. Uh, if you could send me his contact info, I'll be happy to bring him on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no. yeah, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you about 9/11. I totally agree that it was um, um, most likely an inside job, but I think it was to do the bidding of the uh, fossil fuel behemoths uh, who wanted, you know, strategic untrammeled strategic access to the uh, oil reserves. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I would agree that energy did play a role, but we'll, be, let's not get into the complicated uh, details around that. Yeah. Uh, but the, again, you know, the, the larger point here is that when ordinary citizens look at things like 9-11 and, uh, you know, Jeffrey Epstein running around blackmailing, you know, all of these such important, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, read about the Franklin scandal, and it turns out that sexual blackmail is even worse than that. Uh, and we all know that Hoover had everybody blackmailed, and Meyer Lansky had Hoover blackmailed back in his day. So, you know, the, the 
type type of actually there's some there's some stuff there i don't know about which i'd love to hear, hear more about <laughs> oh, okay well, yeah i mean if, if you if you uh just just read the mm-hmm. standard biographies of j edgar hoover uh he specialized mm-hmm. in sexual blackmail had dirty pictures of all the important politicians and of course uh, yeah i mean yeah, you know yeah. these guys are dark and they're going to use whatever dark you know right, right, right. Work, right so so when we have that kind of a power structure and that power structure mm-hmm. has subjugated the academy the, the world of science and so on and that the scientists are as immoral and mendacious or at whoa, least... Whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Yeah. You make so many jumps, then. Yeah. You like you say things that are kind of smart and interesting, and then you make a jump to something which is incredibly emotional and totally not grounded. And you just did it right there. You know, there's a range of scientists, many, many thousands of scientists are you know, completely ethical and are trying to just do the best for knowledge. You know, and a lot of those are freaking out about the fact that we've overshot, you know, the carrying capacity of the earth and are hurtling towards a salmon drought, you know, mass refugees and climate wars, you know. So, so I, I, that, that's those kind of jumps. It's like that's really you know, endemic of, of the kind of problems we're having like, in terms of how people think and reason these days. Uh, which the social media has also kind of exacerbated. So we well, just quickly okay. jump for extremism. Well, I think maybe, maybe you're, you're not catching the point that the so-called scientific consensus around climate change, which I happen to lean towards agreeing with, of course, as I said, uh, is one yeah. of many forms of scientific quote-unquote consensus that we've seen. And there's there are a number of forms of scientific consensus that you and I know very well are kind of grotesquely wrong and that actually really only exist because of a certain kind of intellectual dishonesty of the great majority of scientists. Uh, they, there's still a denial of the reality of psi, of, uh, of psychic powers, for example. Yeah, I, I, would, I, wouldn't actually, I wouldn't actually say even that is necessarily, I wouldn't dishonesty. It's just, um, you know, people get entrenched. I mean, this is like, you know, if you go to, what's his name, Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions, you know, mm-hmm. it's like people's whole careers and you know, lives are invested or embedded in one way of looking at the world, and um, it's not easy for that. That's why well, I mean, it's institutionalized that dishonesty. Are, let's face it. Right? Yeah, well, it's not. It's not necessarily dishonesty. It's actually they're just like, you know, a, 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 the human mind is, is a limited thing, and and a lot of people can only see so far and only change. And that's what that's one of the reasons why I promoted the value of psychedelics a lot because I feel that those are tools that can actually help people develop cognitive flexibility. And without them, people often don't have the necessary cognitive flexibility to look at things from a new perspective or take an other point of view. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, um, and then there's COVID. Um, you, know, you know, COVID is, it, you know, there's non scientific evidence that makes it pretty clear that it's a bioweapon and was almost certainly uh, used deliberately against China and Iran in late 2019. And the scientific consensus. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, once again, once again, it's like that's a big jump. Yes, I agree. I mean, I haven't heard the used against China and Iran part of the thing. I'd be very careful about that and have to do a lot more research. But yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that um, you know there was a development of um, coronaviruses, um, you know, kind of um, that were crossing like HIV. I mean, they were doing wicked stuff, and I, I definitely think this is like a monster that 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 blew out of a lab. And yeah, there was no doubt that gain of function research was a way that uh, the military industrial complex continued doing bioweapon research that was not allowed anymore by the conventions. Mm-hmm. But, but again, the, there's a problem with the so-called scientific consensus, which has not really challenged 
this obvious BS around COVID and in so many ways. Uh, again, I, I don't blame people for not accepting the global warming consensus for that reason. Yeah, but I think that we have to look at these as separate um, separate cases. And, you know, that's, again, to me, one of the problem of, of, of the sort of, you know, sort of shallowness of people's capacity to like to like reason um, feels like it, 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 it comes up here a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, you know, find yeah the whole the whole COVID thing. Um, I'm more in agreement with you that uh, this was um, you know developed as some kind of bioweapon. Um, you know, probably accidentally got out of the lab, um, and um, yeah, it's, and, and then then obviously has provided like a huge you know golden you know gold mine for pharmaceutical companies and a whole techno you know cratic surveillance system to develop about it. I'm like totally against, um, you know, kind of vaccine passports and so on. And although I still find that when I try to really go into the data around whether the vaccines are ultimately a good or a bad thing, I still find it very confusing. I, 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 ha- I don't find that, I, that it's clear yet uh, for me anyway, you know. Yeah, well, I, I actually kind of agree with that. Yeah, I'm going to have some listeners or, you know, who are going to get very angry at me for saying this, but I think there's still a, a really important debate around, you know, what has been the effect of the introduction of the vaccines on life expectancy. And Steve Kirsch is trying to get that debate going. And the fact that there's so much reluctance to engage with what appear to be on the surface some pretty strong arguments for some pretty serious problems with these vaccines makes me suspect that this is yet another of these issues where institutionalized prejudices are keeping people uh, from speaking out, and especially scientists. Again, I really think we have a problem with sources of authority in this culture. The authority uh, is so corrupt that sensible, normal people can't accept it anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that, you know, to a large extent. I mean, on the other hand, you know, there there is still a, a need for, you know, kind of uh, structures of, you know, establishment knowledge that you know, people can agree upon. Um, you know, I mean, right now I've been witnessing the whole Graham Hancock debate around ancient apocalypse. And, you know, and he's a friend and I... And I, and I um, you know, love him as a person, but I, but I also felt very um, put off by the show. And once again, I felt that rather than really reasoned arguments, he was, he was kind of like arguing from a lot of uh, emotionality and um, almost with like an ax to grind against the mainstream archaeologists. And I actually, I find a lot of their perspectives to be well-grounded. So I don't know. It's true. There seems to be a, a missing discussion in the uh, virus uh, you know, in the world, in, uh, you know, in, in terms of the COVID uh, stuff, it's it's also I think it also just may be a case where nobody knows, you know, where there's just murk and uncertainty, and th- and those are the most difficult areas to to deal with, right? Like, you know, I mean, um, I just read a whole bunch of reports that suggest that COVID, you know, long COVID is is you know really weakening people's immune systems and destroying their T cells. Uh, but is that because those people were vaccinated or actually is it COVID working on people who are unvaccinated? I mean, it, it, there's so much data. It's so confounding. Um, yeah, these things are just extremely complex. And I'm, I'm, I'm you know, and I'm not a scientist or can, I can't pretend to be one. You know? Of course, that's that's true. You know, I, I was actually yeah. convinced that uh, climate change was probably happening and was extremely, you know, portending disaster way back in the 1980s. 
And one of the reasons that I chose to live in a 1955 school bus that had been converted into something of a motorhome on the streets of San Francisco at that time, uh, along with the fact that I didn't have to pay rent, was uh, that I felt I was taking this vehicle kind of out of circulation, using it for a home instead of driving around using gasoline. So you know, I've been aware of that issue for a long time. However, I've also been aware that it is very complex that the, the issue of the negative versus positive feedback loops, which is driving, you know, you, the mathematics of climate change in, is this really complex thing involving these negative and positive feedback loops. If only the positive feedback loops existed, which is what some people uh, on the alarmist side seem to be implying in the way they talk about it, then, you know, as soon as the earth got warmer, the warmer it gets, the warmer it gets, and it would have already, you know, burned up a million times historically. So there are obviously uh, negative feedback loops as well as positive ones and negative ones kick in at some point. And the way they interact, the way that um, the warmth creates more cloud cover, which actually may be a negative feedback loop uh, and temper the warming, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is really complex. And so, uh, again, I think your conclusions are probably the right ones. However, uh, I can't really get as excited as many of my friends can in terms of insulting the people who don't believe it because it's so complex and because we've been well, lied to so it, much. It, 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 yeah, it's not about insulting anybody. I mean, but in, 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 in this case, I mean, I, I would say that the evidence is pretty... Okay, you, you get to have the last word on that. Well, thank you so much, Daniel Pinchbeck. Uh, I appreciate it. Okay, Kevin, yeah. good, to, good to chat. Yeah, it was a okay. tough one, but we got through it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, take care. Have, have, have a great day. Ciao, okay, ciao. you too. Bye. It's Daniel Pinchbeck. He's uh, one of the more important uh, and free-thinking people out there. Uh, check out his books and see if you don't agree. Uh, we'll be back with Alan Sabrosky and Cat McGuire in a moment. Oh.